You're listening to Rock Shop Live, brought to you by Stuart Travel Guitars. See the incredible stowaway travel guitar at stewartguitars.com. Microphones for Rock Shop Live are provided by Rode Microphones. Now for Music Gear Network, here's your host, guitarist Eric Broadbent. Hey everyone, it is the weekend. Happy Friday to you all. Welcome to Rock Shop Live. We have a very special guest this evening, something I'm very, very excited about, very close to my heart as a guitar player. Uh, I mean, this is just a fantastic evening. We have multi, a gold, platinum, a Grammy award-winning producer slash engineer slash all those good titles and probably many more that I'm <laughs> I'm totally forgetting <laughs> about, Mr. John Canaberti. John, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? I'm doing good. It's uh, hot, dry, and smoky. I'm in Northern California, and as you probably know, uh, we're having our fire season. Yes. So uh, in the background, I have my uh, air purifier running. <laughs> Um, but it's it's warm and uh, we're if the power goes off, that's that's if my screen goes black, you'll know that the power company has shut off my power to prevent a, a forest fire. So that, that's what's going on here. Well, first of all, I'm glad that you're not immediately in harm's way. And you and I were talking just yeah. a moment ago off the air. Maybe we'll start with the start a little bit about this just to kind of let people know the, you know, the dangers that some of these people are facing there. And, you know, here in Canada, we don't experience that. We get the occasional yeah odd uh tornado warnings which is very like we normally don't get that but we've been getting it a little bit more you know the environment's changing a lot but tell us a little bit about, about the story how you know that last fire was potentially caused by electrical problems and now what they're trying to do to prevent that well the uh infrastructure that uh, the grid so to speak that um uh, provides power for all of northern california which is millions and millions of people um it's it's old and coupled with the fact that we now have large populations of people moving into rural areas, into forested areas, primarily that people generally used to not live, we have more and more electricity running through high fire danger areas than we used to. Um, we had a terrible fire a couple of years ago around this time. And uh, many people were killed. A lot of homes were destroyed. And a lot of and it was caused by these electrical wires that were blowing around in the wind and causing uh, uh, fire. And so the company was sued by a lot of people. A class action and, and, suit, right? And, and, and yeah, some sort of class action lawsuit and and uh, ended up um, uh in bankruptcy, Ooh. so to speak. So now they're saying, well, we can't afford any more lawsuits because we're basically broke. So what we're going to do is when it gets windy, we're just going to shut the power off. Jeez. And uh, the, unfortunately, the grid is not laid out in a fashion where it can only be shut off in areas of high danger. It'll get shut off in huge swaths of area that aren't even particularly dangerous. Yeah, I live in the Oakland Hills. I can understand why they might want to shut my power off. But if you go uh, a mile out of the hills and down in, d down into the flatlands, those people are not in danger of a forest fire, yet all their power goes off. And it's not just homes, it's businesses. Yeah. And it's, it's billions of dollars when they shut, the, shut it off. So we're all waiting now because it's getting windy and it's hot and it's dry. And, you know, so the power, they give us a warning, uh, you know. Yeah, but 
10 minutes or, or half an hour or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not good. So, not good. Yeah. Well, I guess in layman's terms, too, how people could appreciate this, it's not like going to your circuit breaker, wherever your breaker is in your house and shutting off the kitchen or the stove. You're just, mm-hmm. and now the grid, now the city's gone. The city's out, out of power. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, you know, when power is turned off in a city, it creates havoc. I mean, yeah. we're talking not just. Uh, homes losing power, but we're talking about street lights. Mm-hmm. We're talking about intersection lights. We're talking about everything. Yeah. And Subways it's incre- and- it can, it, you know, in a metropolitan area, that is very dangerous. Yeah. So um, no one's looking forward to it. I know. Well, fingers crossed, because like I told you earlier off the air, too, I've got some friends in that area as well, too. And the last fire that came through, you know, very, very close. And, you know, a lot of people, this is one piece of advice I'll try to share, because I'm the type of person when, you know, like a warning comes on our phones, you know, okay, there's a tornado warning or blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, it's going to be okay. I went outside. Everything looks okay. I shouldn't be that person. And a lot of other people shouldn't be that way. When you get a warning, you know, it's better to take get out. Take it seriously. Yeah, yeah, take it serious. Get out. You know, if, if, if it's a false positive, well, that's great. Get back home and everything's good. But yeah, just take the, take the, watch the news, listen to radio, whatever the case may be, and just be aware. So anyways, we'll wish the best for you. But before we jump into the questions, we'll go over and say hi to a bunch of our friends in the chat. And probably there'll be some questions for you throughout the evening as well, too. Uh, Scott Connors, one of the first people jumping in here. Jim Dales. Matt Krillo's here. Carl Santon from Canada here. Uh, Jim Dales says, looking forward to this since it got announced. Wish, uh, wish Joe Satriani got more acknowledgement, not even listed as an option for Guitarist of the Decade with Guitar World. Four albums, Chickenfoot, G3. Yeah, a lot of times with these, it's popularity contest with these things. Yeah. You know, I think sometimes you take out certain advertisements with magazines and they'll throw you up a higher on the list. It is what it is. I mean, it, it matters on the street is that's where it counts and the people that show up at the concerts, I think. But I agree with you, Jim. Uh, Mark FX, good evening, everyone. Old guy's guitar vlog. Dude, this is crazy. John is a legend. I know he is. He is. He's a legend. In my mind, I don't know about yours. <laughs> and I got to tell you. It's an old st- joke. It's good. And I'll, yeah. I'll share a funny story throughout the end of the program, how humble this fellow is. We could all, t- we could all learn lo- a lot from John. Uh, Scott Roos is here. St- Six String Brian is here. Uh, Ant- Antonel Pudva from over in Italy, I believe, says, Hi, Eric. Christopher Miles is tuning in from Toronto. Good friend of mine. Hey, Bonacera. Awesome. Awesome. And I, the chat just froze. I'm going to try to scroll down. I'm going to come backwards a little bit. Uh, Butterfly and Ladybug Show, that's my better half. She's going to be sharing a lot of your links throughout the evening for your website, uh, which is very, very uh, resourceful. And, of course, your YouTube channel, which we'll talk a lot about. Beautiful channel. Uh, and a lot of people could learn a lot about recording from that channel with the simplicity of one microphone. Mm, I mean, if yeah. you, you know, if you can't get something good with one microphone, I mean, you know, we'll, we'll talk more about that as well too. Uh, Colin Cartmill is here. Brad Miller is here. Uh, uh, Edwin Crane, Gary Tholander. And I'm, I apologize if I missed anybody, I may say your name twice. Brad Miller, I'm going to say it again, just for safety. Uh, let me see here. Ed B is here. Edwin Crane is here. Awesome. We have a full house. Uh, John Mulvey is here. Oh, you know John, of course. I'm sure you know John Mulvey, 3G Guitars. He works, obviously, very closely with Joe Saturani, a little bit, good friend with Joe. Um, if you don't know him, I'm sure you'll hear. I don't think I don't think we've met. Okay, you'll, uh, or maybe you'll, we have. You'll yeah, have to remind it's, me. It's possible. Talk to Joe. He'll Joe will Joe will let you know about John. He's a great great uh, player, and he um, has this really really cool neck pocket on his guitar that he builds under the 3G Guitar uh, brand. Really, and Joe, ha- I think Joe has one. Uh, continue on. Uh, Carl Santon, if you have time for a question, what is one thing John has learned from working with so many talented people? That's a great question right off the hop. Let's start with that. Oh, wow. Um, 
What have I learned? Wow. Um, That's a tough one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. It, it doesn't sound like it's a tough question, but it it has because each each of these people, and there's been uh, hundreds, mm-hmm. you know, I learned all sorts of things about um, how they approach their art. That's a kind of a real general uh, description, but, you know... There is something that is, there's probably something they all share, and that's the the passion that they have for what it is they do. And I don't think any of them could imagine really doing anything else but what they do. Mm-hmm. So I think if there's if there's one thing that that I've learned from all of them is follow your passion and. You know, it it may not turn out exactly the way you think um, you you want it to, but you'll you'll be okay. Mm-hmm. I, that's I, I think you know what I mean. No, I do. I think I, yeah. You, you know, your passion and your art will take care of you. You know, you may not be the big. You may not become the huge rock star. You may. Um, not sell boatloads of records. You may not be even famous in any in any way, mm-hmm. but you'll have your art. And as artists, I think, you know, your job is to create art. That's your that's you, that's why you're here. You're here to create art. And like Andy Warhol said, if people don't like it, just make more. Yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> for sure. So, so I think, uh, I I guess that I've. Uh, that's about as good as I can no, answer I think that that's question in, in a general sense. I mean, we could talk about each individual, but sure. we'd be here for three days. Oh, so. I know. I know for sure. Well, we'll talk about a few of them tonight. We'll be talking yeah. about Paul Gilbert. We were talking about your friend Joe Satriani a little bit yeah. and some mm-hmm. others as well, too. But yeah. it, here's something kind of uh, just uh, kind of interweaving what Carlos said there. And I have a really good question on deck from John Mulvey again, too. This is something you'll love because it's mixing uh, desk uh, console related. But I mean, you know, a lot of these players that come through your studio, you've worked with some of the best of the best. And, you know, I'm just going to use a couple right off the top of my head with Joe Satriani and Paul Gilbert, two guitar players I admire greatly. And I mean, these guys come in there, they're on the top of their game. I mean, just amazing players. But I, I, I bet I'm willing to bet because it's a job of the producer to make them even better than what they are. Do you have you found from either we'll just use Paul and Joe as an example. Have you seen them walk out of the studio with a kind of thank you for, you know, that cuz I know you're not the type of producer where you're just going to like phone it in and say okay, are you happy with that? We're good. I think you're the type of guy that's like Paul, you're more capable, you're capable of more. Joe, you're capable of more. Do you find that the guys sometimes have walked away with a thank you for some of the things that you've done? Um Oh, of course. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Paul and and Joe. Both those guys are um, generous and humble and incredibly professional. And they have the ability to show appreciation. Mm -hmm. They don't have they don't bring their egos and their rock star. prowess to a recording session right uh, that's for the stage people yeah. pay to see that mm-hmm. um it's useless in a recording session in fact it yeah. can be destructive if it's not 
controlled properly. Right. It can turn off a lot of people, including the people you're playing with, for Christ's sake. So, um, yes, I always sense uh, from them uh, their appreciation for what I do. And that's what um, feeds me. Uh, I mean, without it, you just never know. You never know, like, wow, should I have said that? Or... Mm -hmm. Wow, you know, that was really a bad idea. I hope they don't hate me for it. <laughs> yeah, I'm never going to do another record <laughs> um, with them again. You, you know, or, you know, I mean, it's just like anything. You, I mean, you, you're, you're always concerned about, you know, how you're participating. But, you know, these are, these are forces, forces to be reckoned with, these two guys. Oh, boy. You know, yeah. I mean, trust me, those two in particular, mm -hmm. probably more so than any anyone else I've ever worked with. Um, they are very prepared and very professional. Yeah. It's almost like the, the producer's job a lot of the times is to get out of the way. Okay. Be a facilitator. If they, if you observe that something needs to be done, something needs to be said, something needs to be handled, that's your job take care of it. Gotcha. But if things are moving, um, uh, organically in a way that, um, you know, the artist has, um, expressed to me like how they want the sessions to be run. Mm -hmm. If, if it's, if it's rolling and it's, and people are playing well and they seem to be enjoying themselves then my job is to not screw that up exactly with, with some dumb idea or, you know, uh, or, or feel like, oh, you know, um, I'm not participating enough. Um, I need to go out there and show them who the producer is. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and, and in both uh, cases of Joe and with Paul and with many others, it's more co-production. And I and I and I would I probably should say at this point that I I don't see myself as a producer. Um, I see myself really as a recording engineer and facilitator. I like that. So um, you know I do more than just engineer records. Right. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, originally that wasn't the case because that was all I knew how to do. But over time, over five, eight, 10, 15, 20 years of making records, you start to learn, um, about the process and the, a lot of the mistakes that can be made in, in, in recording studios. And you, you know, you want to avoid those to, mm -hmm. to save time and energy and oftentimes money, money for the client. So in those cases, you kind of, uh, well, you kind of act, start acting like a, a little bit of a producer. <laughs> you know, like I don't think that uh, two days of tracking and, and one day of vocals is going to get this record done. Right. <laughs> I think we need more studio time and I think we need to record it at this place. And, you know, you start to cross the line of uh, being a recording engineer uh, and you start moving more and more into production. Yeah. Um, the first time I was called a record producer was we, uh, Joe and I had just finished surfing with the alien. A beautiful, beautiful record. And um, 
you know, I was hired to engineer. Mm -hmm. That was my job to engineer and facilitate, make whatever was going on in Joe's head at the time and try to make it come out speakers. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) How do you do that? I don't know. But I tried. And that's what happened. Um, And so he called me up and he says, you know, um, I think that you should get production credit for surfing because you did so much more than just engineer it. Sure. You know, so it's like, oh, wow. Well, thank you. I never thought of myself as the producer. I thought, you you know, because basically it was just him and I made that record. I mean, we brought people in to do things, but he and I spent 90% of the time together Mm -hmm. making it. So so once he said it, I bought it. It was like, yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, I was. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. You, you I, feel I like you warranted it. Yeah. Of course I did. Yeah. <laughs> but up until then, I hadn't really thought about it. And then he said, oh, and by the way, because you're now co-producer, you're going to get a piece of the action. You're going to get um, uh, royalties on Points. the record. Yeah. And, and that I hadn't expected. But at the time when surfing was finished, neither one of us thought it would sell one record. So <laughs> <laughs> I thought, well, that's very nice of you, Joe. Yeah. And then he said, oh, and by the way. I'm also going to do this retroactively for not of this earth. You got it. I did was, not know that. Which, which was done um, in this basically the same fashion, but just very quickly. Um, so wow. that's the first time somebody called me a producer and gave me production, a production credit. So once that gets put in print on the back of a record, and of course, remember back in 86, we were still making vinyl here. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, we were making vinyl and cassettes and I think we yeah I think the first round of mastering we actually did CDs too okay so when we when we got our gold record it was a, a um, combination yeah you're right it was the, it was the, the the vinyl disc a cassette and a CD all all haphazardly put on this panel and but that's <laughs> really cool though too funny. because today if I mean it's nice to just be the person to be a recipient of that award but that's even kind of extra cool because today yeah. I mean if you're if a person's lucky enough to get one of those they get what do they get like an iTunes gold card or something I have no idea it's ridiculous I, I mean I I don't know streaming I mean how yeah. do you put that on a wall but so that's so um, cool. You know, I don't know if I answered the question. Oh, I, uh, I'm not even sure sh- anymore either. But it, the answers are great. <laughs> oh, and by the way, uh, my wife handed me a glass of wine before I came downstairs to, okay. uh, to do this, and so that's what I'm sipping here. I don't she, know what it is. It's it's good. Cheers. Uh, she 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 said you're more chatty on wine. Okay. So. Well, you're doing great. So cheers to you, my friend. Awesome. <laughs> right. Cheers. All right. Um, speaking of wine, our good friend uh, Gary Holt is down from Wine Country uh, in Paso. He says he says here he's here and he doesn't have any uh, scheduled uh, sh- electricity shut off yet, so that's good as well too. Oh, good. He's down yeah. in that area. Uh, so this is fantastic. That's such a cool story about Joe going retro on that as well too. But that's a yeah, thing. and and you know that is who Joe Satriani is, by the way. I can see that. Th- that was before he was a a rock star. Right. Right. This was before he had any real success. And he is the same way today. Yeah. He's the same guy. You know, there's, so. I talk about him a lot on the show. Um, you know, there's a lot of guitar. Like, I used to run a show that was all uh, Van Halen themed. It used to be called EVH and Gear TV. It was all nothing but Eddie Van Halen. Love the man to death. 
But the the other guitar players had come up a lot. The names like Joe Satriani, and not that I would put this next fellow in the same category as a shredder, but he is iconically just as he's brought so much to rock. Ace Frehley from Kiss, I love him to death. He's not a Joe Satriani, he's not a yeah. shredder, but he's Ace Frehley, right? Yeah. We, Paul Gilbert, of course. He's, yeah, he's Paul Gilbert's been on the show. But Joe Satriani strikes me as, and I love Steve Vai. I love him to death, and, and they're all good friends. Uh, I'm just going to move your camera. Can I have you just bump over to your, I guess, what, oh. the, the, yeah, they can put right in there. Just so I don't have to adjust the camera here. Right. Okay. Um, Joe is just one of those guys that the improv, I mean, he, I know he knows his game when he's going into the studio, but when you put him on the spot, like watching him jam Hendrix and stuff like that, he just oozes passion and he is a he can fly by the seat of his pants and it sounds like it's been orchestrated for months yes he is the quintessential uh music teacher <laughs> you know he started as a music teacher and i don't think that he's ever stopped i think that he still studies music mm -hmm. it, I, I i mean in the classic sense yes i mean in I mean, he really understands how music is put together. Yeah. Um, a lot of, you know, if you're playing the blues, you know, you can study how it's put together, but at the end of the day, you're playing the blues, mm -hmm. you know, and obviously some do it a lot better than others. Um, but Joe, when he um, is putting together an arrangement and writing a song, he has an infinite palette yes. to, 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 to use to construct music with. Yeah, that vocabulary <laughs> is like, it's like it's a, a volumes of encyclopedias. Remember back in the day when we get those encyclopedias? You know, the mm -hmm. volumes of them? A lot of guitar yeah. players out there have a little trick book. Joe has, Joe has encyclopedias. In his brain. Yeah. That are, that's in operation 24-7. I know. I mean, he is a musicologist. I mean, he really puts the, and he'll say things to me like I'll look at him and I'll go I have no idea what you just said <laughs> but I'm very interested but I got a feeling it's going to take a few hours for you to explain that to me and he and he'll do things and construct things um in songs that he sometimes expects people to figure out and sort out or or ask about or or notice mm -hmm. and they don't and it, I wouldn't say it frustrates him, yeah. but he, he often, uh, let me give you an example. Sure. Um, uh, he, had, he had done an album. I'm not sure which record it was. Um, it wasn't a record. It wasn't a record that um, I worked on. It was a Frasier produced record. Um, the wormhole record, I think it is. Okay. Yeah. I, 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 I'm not 100% sure. But he said to me one day, he says, you know, um, I, I, I put the sequence together so each song would move up in key. So it would start at one key, and by the end of the record, it would be at, at the final key okay. or something. And so, and he says, but nobody ever noticed he says, when I go do interviews like in Japan with these kids that um, pay attention to that kind of stuff, nobody brought it up. Nobody noticed. 
So he's probably bummed. And out. I said, and I said to him, I said, Joe, how, who would ever notice <laughs> such a thing? And why would you sequence a record based on that? That's yeah. a really dumb idea. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and that's, you know, my relationship with Joe is. You can um, say those things. Uh, can... I can say pretty much whatever I want. I'm always, of course, respectful. Yeah. Um, but, but you know, we we started off together, and I met him in 78. And um, he likes me because I pretty much say whatever's in my mind just comes out my mouth. Yeah. Um, uh, but I'm never cruel, and I'm never mean, and I'm never disrespectful. So yeah. um, he likes he likes honesty. And he knows that if he's going down a path, of what we call diminishing returns mm-hmm. <laughs> in the studio. You know, we're in hour three of some solo or something, and I stand up and stretch and go, Joe, mm, let's go home. Yeah. He'll go, yeah, and he'll just pack up and we'll go. You know, it's that kind of thing. He knows it. Yeah. He knows yeah, that. You know, he, he knows that I'm hearing and seeing and sensing something that – he, he, you know, he's just too caught up in, in, in what he's trying to do. And it's, and it's getting in the way of, you know, yeah. the goal. Yeah. Before I jump into the three really good questions that come in from fans here as well, two viewers, I'll just share something that's really uh, something you can share this with Joe, because it's a very personal story that I think he'll appreciate. Uh, so my son, Eric Jr., he's a musician now. He's 13 years old. He's playing a lot. He plays just about every instrument there is. But you know, wow. you know, as a as a child, you know, you get those things. I think they call them extra saucers. You put them in there, and they got like, little toys they can play with. They can bounce into things. They got little wheels. They can run around the house. So I'd be playing all my Van Halen bootlegs and all that stuff for Junior, and he just he didn't want to have anything to do with it. He's like probably a year and a half, two years old, and this little thing. I'm not sure how old he was, but very a toddler. I'd pop on the uh, Joe Satriani live in San Francisco, um, like some of these, you know, the various DVDs Joe would be putting out back in the day, and he called his one of his first words. Before I think on before mom and dad was Jojo, Jojo. Oh. It was his words. So it was just all the lighting. It was the guitar stuff, and he was mesmerized. We have some videos somewhere mm. where I don't think he blinked for forty minutes. Like his wow. eyes would just seize up dry. So there's a little story for Joe when you see him next time. So you can say the the fellow that was on the show, his son uh, was a Jojo fan since what a year and a half. Okay, a JoJo fan that got mesmerized by Live in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah, the Stu Ham Ham stuff and all that. That was great. So awesome. Here's jump over to some really, really cool questions. So back to some things that are close to your heart. Uh, John Mulvey, who I mentioned earlier, uh, he asked, what is John's favorite mixing desk? Ooh, uh, for mixing. Mm -hmm. Now, um, uh, understand that um, there are some consoles that are I prefer for recording on. Yep. And then there's other ones that I prefer mixing on. Right. So um, if his if his, if I'm going to take his question literally, I'd say an SSL. Okay. Yeah. Uh, recording, it would be. Um, it kind of depends on the project. Um, if it's. Um, a lot of acoustic instruments, and we're looking for more of a clean, open, um, dynamic sound. An API would be my choice for recording. If it's uh, a rock record, heavy, you know, full-bodied rock record, then, of course, it would have to be a Neve. Um, okay. Uh, early 80s series Neve console, yeah. Great answers. Here's a question from Antonello. says, um, uh, to ask John, did you ever work with any artists 
um, at any time that was uh, that was not completely in agreement with some of your production choices, and if if it happened, how did you solve it? I'm sure that had to come up a few times. Um, well, again, I, I got to go back to what I was saying. I never thought of myself as a producer, right? So, I'm not one to um, argue with clients about uh, production decisions on their part. Um, you know, I mean, really it's their record and mm -hmm. I respect that. One thing, um, anecdotally, I'll just point out, you know, a lot of times in, in the course of making, uh, doing a recording of a song, for instance, you get to a place where it's just not working mm -hmm. and you've got five, six people in the room, including myself. We all know it's not working, but no one person can articulate why it's not working. Right. And so at that point, uh, things kind of grind to a halt. And that can be uh, problematic because, you know, uh, budgetarily, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, because a lot of the records um, that I did, particularly in the 80s and 90s, or, or yeah, in the 80s particularly, we had budgets of say twenty five thousand dollars, twenty five to fifty thousand dollars was was a typical budget, mm -hmm. and I had to sit down in advance and really work out the day to day activities, how, how we that. are going to allot the time for these activities. So, if we get to a point where a song is just absolutely not working and nobody has an answer to it, scrap it. That's well, well, maybe. But that's kind of the job for a producer now. I mean, sure. the producer better come in and go, okay, guys, I know what to do. Change his chorus, get rid of the section here, need, shorten it uh, up. We need to do this, we need to do that, we need to do that. So um, there are times where one has to um, kickstart uh, a process that maybe has gotten bogged down in some kind of... Um, uh, argument or confusion or, you know, a lot, you know, bands rehearse and when they rehearse, they don't often record themselves, particularly in the eighties, people mm -hmm. didn't have uh, facilities to record themselves very easily. So well, they think they're doing a great job and, you know, they may come to the studio and a lot of times I'll do pre-production, but you get into the studio and start recording it and you start listening to it back and you go, wow, that's really not working. That really sucks. Yeah. So a producer has to step in and, and start making some suggestions and throwing it. Now, great producers, guys like George Martin and Quincy oh, Jones sure. and Don was, and I, I mean, I could go down the list <laughs> of the A-list sure. record producers they could turn shit into something that is Shinola. like <laughs> into something that is really great. Yeah. Because now I'm not that kind of producer. I'm an engineer. Gotcha. But I can say to myself, wow, what that guitar player has been playing is really cool. Why don't we focus on the good stuff and the things that aren't working like that turn around Phil going into the bridge that drummer keeps trying to play that he keeps failing at, mm -hmm. you know, I can sort of like go, okay, well let's eliminate that, you know, and work with the band and sort of, um, uh, take care of the obvious, if you will. Yeah. 
Yeah. But so oftentimes in, in the course of doing that, as an, as an objective person sitting on the other side of the glass listening to this, because when you're playing it, you don't often know what's going on. True. You're, you're listening to your own part. So as, a, as the objective person on the other side of the glass, I go, man, every time, you know, they go into that second chorus, they pull way back in tempo. And it's like, what do, why is that? That shouldn't be happening. You right. know? Those are the kind of things that an engineer slash producer should be noticing. And those are the things you can go in and help them with. Um, sometimes you might have uh, someone in the band point out to you that that's a bad idea mm -hmm. and they don't and they don't they're not they don't want to cooperate and my feeling is is that if somebody in the band is really objecting to something mm -hmm. whether it's my idea or somebody else's they're probably right oh good <laughs> you know they're probably right they're not being a a-hole right they're just they're picking up something internally that we need to all pay attention to. If so, the lesson here that I'll share with everybody is: someone in your band is vehemently objecting to something. It's because internally, it's rubbing them really the wrong way. And so you could just assume that if it's going to rub him the wrong way, it might rub a thousand people the wrong way. That's right. The same, the same wrong way, if you will. The thing is, if it's sitting on the store shelves after the fact, you haven't said a word while you had your chance. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think that people instinctively know something's wrong. Yeah. And, and when a band's sitting around a room and they're scratching their heads going, wow, I you know, this really is not good. And somebody knows thinks they know why then yeah i'll pay attention to them that's good that's that's great advice and i mean i'm sure there's some times where the lead singer may say the guitar solo is too loud just just to be that guy but there's probably a lot of times where it might only be one voice out of a group that is uh well well served <laughs> well if he said it at every mixing session yeah it's a little bit every different. guitar solo yeah i would say yeah he's an asshole get him out of here that's right okay but if he said it once yep I would go. He might have a oh, point there. Oh, you know what? He's probably right. Yeah. You know, he just came in off the street, walked in, he heard it, and that was his immediate gut reaction. Yeah. You know, we're all caught up in it. You know, so you know, he's probably right. Yeah. Pay well, attention to that kind well of stuff. Well said. Yeah. Uh, here is a technical question from Edwin, um, and this may have changed from time to time. He and you may you may know, you may not know, it may have changed. Edwin asked, "What was uh, Joe's favorite mic for his cab?" Oh, he he never had a favorite okay. microphone. Whatever worked, for, right? Yeah. Um, you want to get into that? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's <laughs> That's do it. kind of a you know a thing. Yeah. Um, I think the fans will like that for sure. It's a thing. Yep. You know, you know, I grew up. Um, I started as uh, doing live sound. A lot, a lot of recording engineers grew up doing live sound because that those were the only consoles people would let us touch right sure so um you know when you would work at cl in clubs and um uh you know small halls or you you were touring uh, dynamic microphones and um uh, microphones that you could you know heavy duty mics that you could 
nail with. Oh yeah, fifty sevens uh, or a fifty eight. Put stuff in the wall. They, yeah, they <laughs> yeah, use them for I hammers. Mean, yeah, really strong. Mm. Yep. You know, microphones that will really last. Those are the ones you were given to work with. So, yep. they, you know, the SM57 became sort of a de facto uh, microphone. Uh, and, I, and it came from the live world. Sure. Because it was what was on people's cabinets. And, of course, when bands then started going into studios and recording, you know, the engineers in their suits and ties or white coats or whatever, they put up their big – big capsule Neumann, whatever mm -hmm. expensive condenser microphone and mic it from five feet away because yeah. this is what we do. And of yeah. course it wouldn't sound right. Wouldn't sound good. And it wouldn't sound like the band live. So, you know, we started using those in studios, the same, you know, mm -hmm. hundred dollar microphones. And, uh, you know, the SM57 has a lot of qualities to it that, um, lend itself to loud guitar amplifiers. The fact that it can stand a high uh, sound pressure level. Yeah. Uh, the fact that it has proximity effect, meaning that the closer you get it to the uh, speaker, the the low end will build up. And to isolate electric guitar um, with loud drums and other loud electric guitars, you want to have the microphone as close to the amp as possible. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, you have this added effect. It's it's, it's some it sometimes can be a detriment, um, and it has a frequency. It has a boost at the top end, primarily for vocalists, but it works good on electric guitars because it opens up the top that you can later kill. Now that's just really general, mm -hmm. um, and like the NS10 uh, monitor speakers that you saw on consoles for all throughout the 80s and 90s, they became de facto uh, monitors for uh, studios. The SM57 became the de facto, you know, and, and maybe some guitar player, maybe it was Eddie Van Halen, I don't know who it was, <clears throat> said in some magazine some at some point that this is what they had and everybody ran out and got those and used those and, and things like that. At the end of the day, really, what are you doing? You're making a record. Um, you're manipulating sound. There are a dozen variables in play here. You have the player themselves. In mm -hmm. other words, the notes they choose to play, how they play the guitar. God knows you take, Jeff Beck's guitar off him and hand him to Eric. Guess what? Not You're not going to sound like Jeff Beck, not right? Not at all. Not the so, volume, not the dynamic, not the approach. Exactly. So mm -hmm. the player has a lot to do with it. The guitar itself, we all know, mm -hmm. has a lot to do with the sound. Mm -hmm. Whatever the hell that guy's got plugged in, it, it plugged into, whether it's a Wawa or any of the 12,000 different versions of stomp boxes yep tone suckers then, in there and, and then it goes to what a guitar amp and we all know that there's dozens and dozens of guitar amplifiers and then into a speaker cabinet with a dozen different types of speakers exactly right and and so to say that an sm57 is definitely the mic to use is, is for what i yeah. mean it doesn't always work um well However, if you're doing a live gig and I have an SM57 and I have some Japanese mic that I, I've never heard of and I've got a rock band on stage, 
Eh, I'm going to pick the 57. Sure. That's the microphone I'm going to put. Why? Because I know the microphone. Right. It's reliable. I know what it is. I know what it sounds like. I know what it does. And that is everything. Yeah. You know, that that eliminates the variable, but, the, the variable of the at least the microphone. Right. The all the other things I have no control over. That's right. I don't have control over the guy. don't have control over his guitar, his stomp box, his amplifier, his speaker cabinet and whatever effing speakers he's got in that speaker. I have no control over it. Sometimes I don't even have control over where that microphone is placed on the speaker cabinet. If if I have a stage hand that's sticking microphones up mm-hmm. there, right? Yeah, that's right. So you can't even say I want it over here. And that's the thing the, we've 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 yeah, opened up the, the biggest. The only variable, the only variable I have control over is that is knowing that microphone. That's it. So that that's one of the reasons why it's become a de facto microphone. Yeah. Right now, let's let uh, let's go to a recording session with me and Joe. Okay. Right. Joe says to me, he says, "Man, I want some big, fat." Um, uh, aggressive, uh, thumpy uh, rhythm guitars in the left and the right channel uh, for this song. Okay. I want the song to start with this big, cool, big thing. Mm-hmm. I want it to sound like a Godzilla <laughs> stepping on cars or something. Well, okay. <clears throat> All the variables I just mentioned are in play. And so I think about microphones. And if you've been a recording engineer long enough, you start to understand what certain mics can do and what certain mics can't do. So in, you know, you know, it being my job to give Joe what he wants, I'll go to the microphone cabinet and go, okay, hmm, that might work, that might work. That will definitely not work. That's the wrong mic. Let me try this. So I might go out and put three or four different microphones on his cabinet. I don't tell him what they are. Yeah, because he that, doesn't, that's right. He doesn't even care what they are. Um, uh, he's usually in the control room with me. He'll play, and then I'll have the faders in front of me, and I'll I'll just open up one one of the mics, and he'll play for a minute, and he'll go, okay. Next one, and I'll open up the next one. He'll go, oh, no, what, what is that? Doesn't work, right? <laughs> Bring it back. Why did you put that mic up? Um, it will turn that off. And then I'll open up another one, and he'll go, hmm, yeah, I, I'm kind of digging that, but it's, I don't know, it's a bit too wooly sounding. Okay, let me go out. I'll pull the microphone back off the speaker just about four inches, sure. and that'll maybe cure some of the wooliness, mm-hmm. right? So he'll go out and do that. Now, he, again, he he may not even know what those microphones are. Sure. You know. And that's a good uh, unless thing. I, sometimes I might write them on the console, 57, of C12A, or, you know, whatever it is. But he doesn't care. Right. All he cares about is, what is it delivering the sound we want? And then sometimes we'll go through a bunch of mics, and he'll go, I don't like any of them. And then he'll look. And then, then we have to have the conversation. Well, well it's probably not the mic. Mm-hmm. You know, I just gave you a huge variety of microphones. Maybe the problem is that guitar. And he'll take his guitar and go, "Yeah, you know what? Let me go try something else." He'll yep. take it. So, it is a constant, nonstop, teeter totter experimentation 
of microphones, a, a continuous rotation of microphones, micro, um, stomp boxes, amplifiers, mm -hmm. uh, speakers, to you know, produce to paint the painting. We're you know, we're like painters. We're painting a, a picture in sound. And Joe is looking for something really specific. You know, like it or not, given any of Joe's material, and there's hundreds, mm -hmm. maybe a thousand pieces of music now sure. to listen to. Uh, like it or not, I can absolutely assure you that in probably most cases, the guitar sound that you hear is 100% deliberate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? I yeah. mean, it's deliberate. And that's not to say that five, eight, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years later, Joe and I don't listen to those and go, wow, what were we thinking? Yeah, what was our thought process <laughs> there? Why did we do that? That yeah. is terrible. <laughs> you know, I mean, we, we can be our own worst critics. Of course. And, and, and sometimes going back and looking back in, retro, in retrospect with all that we've learned we can be very, very judgmental about it. Up to a point, we don't beat ourselves up about it. We know that at the time we were trying to do something and we may now believe we were or were not successful at it, but people liked it, mm -hmm. people responded to it, and we've made dozens of records since then, and we're gonna you know, make dozens of records more. So if you like it, great. If you don't, it's, that's okay. Yeah. You know. I like the idea of not actually labeling the mics because I find a lot of times in life when we're told what something is, like I, I talked about this the other day on um, I was, when I was demoing my Helix. I was playing my Helix. So that's what I use pretty much. I don't use amplifiers anymore. And I was looking at a speaker cab and I had a speaker cab block on, in Helix and then I had an impulse response. And looking at the, the, the editor on my screen, my eyes were telling me that I liked the uh, the impulse response better, right? So, and, and I thought, okay, I like that one much better. And this was just some generic impulse responses at the time. And and then I, I put it on an A-B so I could toggle with my foot switch. I could toggle between a, real, a speaker cab and an impulse response. So looking at it, my eyes told me one thing. I turned around and I'm toggling back and forth. And I'm sitting there playing. And just like you said, how Joe said, okay, that sounds nice. So when I found the spot that sounded nice to my ears, I, I immediately thought it was going to be this. And I looked at it, and sure enough, I was wrong. My eyes deceived yeah. me, but my ears told me the truth. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I would encourage guitar players who are, who are recording at home or, or in studios to uh, not make any assumptions about microphones mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, moving a microphone just like an inch in either direction can completely change the sound of that mic of that one microphone for sure you know um so there's lots of things one can do to um help you arrive to that place that is right for the song because mm -hmm. it's all about the song really i mean that's what we're doing we're making we're creating you know emotional um, compositions, rend re composition, renditions mm -hmm. of, of, of human emotion. So we're looking for those tools to get us there. That's right. Uh, and, and don't assume that because you read somewhere that so-and-so uses a particular guitar or a particular stomp box, a particular, well, that was fine for that song mm -hmm. on that day, you know, that's right. But that doesn't guarantee you anything. So, um, uh, you know, on, on Joe's records, there's lots of different 
lots of different microphones being used, but I, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that, oh, on crushing day, we used, you know, an AKG C12A, which sure. we might have, because yeah. I love that microphone, um, because it's kind of useless information, right? Yeah, it because is. It beca- <laughs> because unless you have Joe and that guitar setup in that studio on that console running on that piece of tape with yeah. me in the room EQing the hell out of whatever I was doing, unless, unless, unless all that is in play, it doesn't matter. Exactly. I mean, it, and, and, and then even if all that was – even if you had all that, you end up with uh, maybe something that's identical. Well, so what? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, is is imitating somebody your thing? I mean, is yeah. that your goal in life? It, it wasn't Joe's, so, yeah. so or, or Paul Gilbert, I mean, or any of your heroes. I mean, they're not out trying to sound like some other guy. They're putting their own stamp on it. Exactly, and they put their own stamp on it because they don't care about that crap. Mm-hmm. So I'm here to tell you it don't matter. You know, a good a good uh, thing to take away from that is so you know all these guys. If we're chasing the Joe Satriani's, we're chasing the Eddie Van Halen's. We buy the Van Halen amps. We buy the the signature pedals. Joe has his own signature line of guitars and pedals and that kind of stuff too. The only person who's going to recreate that. So you make some production notes in the studio. You go home uh, on a on a Saturday night. You come back on a Sunday. So we were Mike and Joe's cabinet with a SM57 on the 412. He uses 24 Fred Ibanez. Blah blah blah. Those are those notes that you've made. That will only work for Joe coming back the next day. Joe's, it's Joe Satriani. It's his guitar. It's that amp. It's that 57. We didn't move anything. That's the only way it's going to sound like Joe Satriani on day two. There's a, yeah. there's great players out there that can probably get in the wheelhouse. But you know, no matter what, those pedals, those amps, those signature things are not going to be exactly like the tone coming from the individual who created it. Yeah, they're selling themselves short. Mm-hmm. You know, They're not allowing themselves to... Um, maybe it's scary to kind of like do your thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I listen, when I listen to like our some of our really early records, yeah, <laughs> the the get some of the guitar sounds are really uh, um, questionable. Let me put it that way. But in context of the album. And the piece of work, they're perfect. Yeah. Does that does that make sense? It does. I, I like mean, I like that. In other words, if you take that guitar solo from uh, "Surfing with the Alien," mm-hmm. uh, the the first the first uh, they're actually the guitar solo. If I remember correctly, is like two or three sections of it. Like the second section, we kick on something. And it's really gnarly sounding, mm-hmm. but for some reason it works for that song. Sure. And we left it. I mean, we, at the time when we mixed it, we knew what we were doing and that's what we wanted to do. And we put our stamp of approval on it. You signed but off. If you took that guitar sound and put it on pretty much anything else, including anything Joe's ever recorded, it would be a bad idea. Yep. <laughs> you know? So, um, have, I mean, I, I would just tell guitar players, man, have fun, man. Uh, explore outside of the realms of, of traditional. I agree. And that's where you're going to find your muse. That's where you're going to find that thing that makes you different and special. 
you know. Well, look at look at. I don't mean to go off on a tangent, but a lot of our fans that watch, uh, you know, the guitar shows here, they're they're sci-fi, uh, you know, freaks and stuff like that as well, geeks. Uh, and look mm-hmm. at Star Wars in the yeah. late '70s. You know, look what they had then to to do what they did, and look what we have available today for for you know entertainment, uh, movies, Hollywood. Yeah, and yeah. it was perfect. So you know, you're talking about what you did on a guitar album back in the day compared to what you can do now. But it spoke. And Star Wars, I mean, I, I hate to use Star Wars and music as an analogy, but look what it did. It blows away most things today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah? That's, that's yeah. incredible. Um, and in a second, I want to jump over to uh, talking about, you know, um, you know, live engineering, like, you know, mixing consoles for, for live bands and things like that. I want to share a yeah. note with you, but there's a good question here. Uh, John Mulvey, who's got some great questions tonight. I think I know the answer to this one, but he's asking, do you still work at Hyde Street Studios? Uh, no. Okay. Okay. I didn't think you worked there. And he has a second question, which is something we're going to talk about later on in the program tonight, but we can address it now. So these days, the, the term reamping comes up all the time. It's like reamping, reamping, and, and it is technology available to you. But a lot of people don't know where does this thing come from? So you <laughs> yeah. were the catalyst behind that. So maybe in two, two forms here, you can tell us you know how you came about it. And John's question says, have you changed the reamp design? What is the signal chain preference for rock guitar? So tell us a little bit about reamping and, and maybe to address John's question too. Well, um, in 1993, um, I was working on Joe's uh, album, Time Machine. Yep, double disc. Double disc. Yep. Um, the second disc is a live recording. We brought it back to the studio. Uh, we began mixing the live portion of the album. And I noticed that Stu Ham's uh, uh, bass, the recording, uh, it was split. It was um, his amplifier mm-hmm. and uh, a direct, which is very common technique well, of course. in recording bass guitar. You always take a DI and you take a... a blend. A t- take a, yeah, and oftentimes we'll blend them together. Um the DI track was fine, but the the amplifier track had some pretty nasty um, hum and buzz and noise on it. I think a ground something switched sometime from the sound check to the time of the show. I didn't notice it in the truck when I was recording it because I think I might have just had the DI up. Okay. Um, I didn't notice it. You know, when you're recording a live show and you're tracking 30 channels at once, um, even if I were to solo Stu's bass and notice a hum and buzz, there's, there's a, probably a pretty good chance there's not a whole lot I might have been able to do about it. On the fly. On the fly. Sometimes you might send a guy out on stage to try to make the correction. But anyway, um, it, a Stu's recorded amplifier was unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Now, when you're mixing a live record, you need the growl distortion, if you will, mm-hmm. um, the, the the sound of a live bass amp. That has to be part of the sound. Otherwise, it's too sterile sounding. So I said, well, you know, we need to take the, the, the direct track, we need to put it into an amplifier and re-record it. Mm-hmm. You know, feed it out to a, a bass amp or a guitar amp, it doesn't matter what, and stick a microphone on it and record that, and we'll use that and mix it with the DI. Very common thing to do. However, there was no real 
um, uh, technology. Uh, well, there was no real device yeah. that was ever manufactured for people to take a plus four balance line level signal out of a, in this case, a Studer tape recorder mm -hmm. and plug it into a guitar amplifier or bass amplifier. As an output, like I'll put into the input. Yeah, plug it directly into it and make that amp think that a bass guitar is plugged into it, which is sitting around minus 50. I mean, it basically just completely distorts the front end of the amplifier. Right. Uh, it's, it's, it's not very usable. So I started thinking, well, you know, there's got to be a way to do this because here we are in a studio and we have all kinds of different types of a recording console has dozens of different uh, gain stages to it mm -hmm. that are all being adjusted and um, uh, um, refined and controlled through transformers and, and circuit designs and stuff. So I went to a tech and I said, look, make me a circuit that will take the plus four line level signal out of a Studer tape recorder and drop it down to a signal that looks like um, the output of a bass guitar. Okay. Okay, just make me that circuit. So, you know, we did some experimenting and fooled around, and it, I ended up with this box with a transformer in it and a small circuit that essentially did that. It, it just dropped the signal down and adjusted the uh, impedance to, to give me... Um, a flat frequency response and no distortion and it goes right into a bass amp and so I did that we did that over the course of a couple of days I came back to the studio um, took uh, Stu Ham's bass direct track fed it into this makeshift little box I built mm -hmm. and into uh, a bass amplifier I think it was an uh, SVT or something Probably eight and I something. turned it up and I turned it up, and it was like Stu was standing in the room playing. Yeah. It was like, wow, that that actually works. <laughs> I mean, and Joe walked in and said, man, it's like Stu's in the room playing. Because <laughs> I'm sure Stu's so, performance was perfect, you know, as, as he is, but it's just the capture because something was yeah. wrong. Yes, because what's the alternative now? I mean, what would have you been have the alternative? Back have in. Stu come back in and Money? replay all his parts? Too oh much. God, no! We nope. never want to do that. That'd be that'd be terrible. People used to do that. Yeah, but you know, I said no. I mean, now we have his his performance. You know, so um, I you know I put a microphone on it and we had time. We could kick back and get it dialed in right and set the limiter right. You know, we could do all the things to get a really nice recording. So we went ahead and. And sat back and I spent the day just tracking everything from that live show to another channel mm -hmm. as a reamp channel. So I took the box and didn't think much else. You know, it solved that problem. I went on to make other records. And then I started thinking, you know, well, I could start using this thing for other things besides just the bass. Guitar. Uh, like guitar and, mm -hmm. and I can start putting all kinds of things. Anything that's been recorded onto a tape recorder, mm -hmm. I can now put into a stomp box because it sees the same signal sure. or a guitar amplifier. So I started fooling around and having fun with it. So some of the other local engineers in town saw what I was doing and they wanted one. And after a while, people kept asking me to 
for it and it <laughs> went around town and finally I built uh, to make a very long story short um, I built five then I built 50 oh boy <laughs> and then after that it was like oh I think I'm in the reamp business now <laughs> not a recording <laughs> no I know <laughs> yeah because uh, now uh, besides uh, being a full-time recording engineer and producer I'm now a manufacturer <laughs> yeah so uh, me and my buddies would get together on like a Saturday afternoon and we would sit down at a big table and we would wire these things up um, and it got a bit tedious and it got a bit expensive and um, you know I started passing them around uh, when I built a 50, I handed them out to a bunch of different recording engineers all over town in um, L.A. Mm -hmm. And it, just a word of mouth, it was one thing happened, you know, somebody listened to it and thought it was great. And and so um, I had it. I was I was building reamps. I was ha I got to a point where I had to have people build them. I, I went to an actual third party and had them build them mm -hmm. for me. And I did that for about 17 years. And it got to a point where tape recorders were no longer involved. We were um, in the digital age now. People Computer. were recording at home. Yeah. Uh, the I was selling reamps to kids and prosumers. Mm -hmm. And they were doing dumb stuff with it, like blowing them up. <laughs> Jeez. And I was fixing a lot of them that I used to never have to do before yeah, when I was selling to professionals. Yeah. And I was getting all this, I was getting a lot of headaches. So um, Radial out of Canada mm -hmm. uh, came to me and they wanted to buy it. They wanted to buy the name and they wanted to buy the patent that I had for it. And so we you know, it took about a year because <laughs> we went back and forth, uh, went around and around. But eventually I sold uh, the patent and the name to Radial and um, they're they're still building them. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I saw that on the website today, as a matter of fact. <clears throat> so it was uh, <clears throat> it was something that needed to be uh, built mm -hmm. um, at the time. I didn't know if. Uh, people uh, were going to were going to find it useful, mm -hmm. um, but they did, fortunately, and uh, it was a good little business. I had a good little run with it, and I'm you know I sold it for a good good little profit. So that's good. Um, I'm happy with it. And I'm happy that people continue to use it. I think it's I think it's pretty cool. It's become a process now in a studio. Like I mean, it's something it was needed something needed at the time. I mean, we mm -hmm. look at that with. Um, you know, Joe, Joe would say with uh, tremolos, you know, Floyd Rose and the Ibanez tremolos and all these things that were, you know, something was needed. And look where we are with that now. It's changed how guitar is played, you know, and all this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you contributed a lot to the scene for sure. That's a fantastic story. I'm glad to hear it. And it's nice because more people need to know about it. Not everyone does. So a very, very cool share. Uh, well, you know, it's, it is it is a hardware device, of mm -hmm. course, because... Um, we're taking something out of, um, and, and, the, and nowadays, out of your workstation, mm -hmm. out of your DAW, and, and it would be, then go to the box, and in the box, it would go uh, to a guitar amplifier or a stop box, mm -hmm. and then it gets re-recorded. I think our earlier question was, what is this good signal path? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you want to record the guitar um, direct, 
um, to your work to your workstation with no EQ or nothing, just no right effects. out of the guitar to a nice, clean, mm-hmm. the cleanest direct box signal you have. If you've got like a Focusrite uh, outboard interface or when any of those personas interfaces, whatever they are, mm-hmm. record your guitar direct. Those things are really clean. They don't particularly color the sound of your guitar. Just get a nice, good, clean signal there. Don't limit it. Don't EQ it. Just record your guitar onto that. Once that's recorded, you can now take the output of that, that the output of that, and run it into any kind of reempting device. There's mm-hmm. many of them available now, besides the ones Radio makes. Yep. Um, and plug it into a guitar amplifier and mic it up like you would normally would. That's perfect. Think of it as as a insurance policy. Exactly. That's a very good way to look at it. I can I can give an example here. Um, I'm using all digital now myself, running Helix. Now there's, there's millions of modelers out there, but with Helix, I can send. Let's say I want to just pick up a you know a, an old Plexi amplifier in a 412 cabinet, and that's mm-hmm. going to be my sound I'm going to send to my DAW. But I can also at the same time on an, on another track send just raw USB. It's basically clean audio right directly to the computer, and then I can go back later on and say, you know what, that Marshall doesn't sound good. Let's let's run it through a PV or let's run it through a Mesa or, or whatever. And Perfect. so there again, yeah. it's like that Stu Ham is in the room again. Stu Ham's yep. performance was really good. Let's just see because yeah. Stu can't come back today. Let's see what he'd sound like running through this little small 15 uh, uh, 15 inch speaker as opposed to the Ampeg 410 or 810, whatever. Yeah. yeah. I mean, how I mean, uh, hello guitar players, how many times have you re-recorded a p- guitar performance because you didn't like the sound of it, but the performance Was wasn't it? as good? I know, I know. You might have nailed it the I mean, the best ab- yeah. ability and the sound wasn't the best. I sometimes would go with better performance with uh, okay, we could have been better on that sound, but you captured it, man. Yeah. Yeah, the yeah. performance. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if you've got a great performance, man, what a shame to have to throw it away yep. because of the sound. Well, just record it direct while you're recording it through an amp and stuff. I mean, yep. you can you can try to do it the first time, right? And yep. and you know, most most of the time you do. But, you know, <laughs> uh, when I did um Shockwave Supernova with with Cho, um he had recorded a lot of his guitars at home because he's inspired at home. Sure. As he should be. Comfort zone. You know? Yeah. He comes, you know, and he works on his compositions and works on his parts. And he recorded them through, I don't know, Axe Effects-y thingy, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, to, to get something that sounds like a, you know, a, a guitar amp and stuff. But he also recorded everything direct. So when we got to a point with the record, um, we booked a studio, we set up all his amplifiers that he had at the time, which are many. Mm-hmm. And I put microphones of all types on all these amps. And then we had this blast of just sitting there feeding all these amps, these direct guitar recordings and finding the perfect guitar sound for the song. Yeah. You know, and that was that was really cool. It's a luxury that, you know, a guy with a recording budget gets to have, <laughs> <laughs> you know, granted. Um, but, you know, on a smaller scale, pretty much any guitar player can do that. 
Yeah, it's it's amazing. Yeah. It's totally amazing yeah. that the world we live in today. Now we can do these kind of things, and yeah. I mean, the the budgets are not there. Especially with you're lucky to get a, a, any kind of a deal these days as it is. So it's all crowdfunding. It's indie funding. Yourself self on your credit card. So I mean, it's uh, we don't have that luxury like some of these bands did back in the day. But there was never a luxury period because a lot of that stuff was advanced. Anyways, we'll give you a, you know a quarter of a million dollars to do this. That includes your tour. Blah blah blah. And uh, you know the bands out there buying cars. And meanwhile, they got to pay all that stuff back, and they haven't even gone on a tour yet. Yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah. And I, I I recently saw a, a recording contract, um, a new you know, for you know, a, a recording contract that is being used today. Okay. And I was like blown away at what the record company is taking a piece of. Eesh. Basically, they take everything. Yeah. They they want a piece of everything. Yep. It used to be back in the day, they would take a piece of the record, of course, because they're they're basically fronting you the money to make the record. So right. they basically own the performance, they yep. own the recording, and of course, they should get paid. I mean, they put up they're they're taking the risk. You know, if you suck and you don't sell any records, yep, then they out. take a hit. That's right. Well, you know what? They do this with a hundred acts. If five of them go big, that pays for the rest, right? Yep. I mean, so um, you know, I understand that, but because nobody's making money selling records anymore, no, um, they need to have to do what they do. Uh, they need to have a little piece of everything merchandise. You sell a t-shirt with your band name on it. They get a piece of it. Oh yeah. That's, that was unheard of even five years ago. Oh, I know. Well, that's the thing too. If if people ever have this question of why we seen so many of these, maybe even seventies, eighties, uh, nineties bands coming back, no new record nor touring. There's a reason for it because touring right now for those. And like, yeah, a lot of these bands will come back. They don't even have a new record, not even a new single. They'll just come out and they'll tour but, you know, none of them, I shouldn't say none of them. I mean, many of them had hits and, you know, they're probably doing very, very well. But a lot of them only may, maybe had a hit or two. And, you know, paying for that nice house or paying for whatever they may have, the only way to do it is to tour, maybe some merchandise sales. Because as you yeah. say, the, the sales are just the, even now it's streaming. I saw such a horrendous stat the other day online. I'm not going to quote the stat because I'll get it wrong, but it's like so many thousand, thousand, thousand streams compared to was equal to one album sale, what the individuals would make. And it's just, it's shocking. More and more people getting exposure, but exposure doesn't pay the bills for the electricity and gas and right. all that kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah. I mean, if you're not making records for 13, 14 year olds, you're kind of out of the game. Yeah. I mean, you I mean, you're not even taken seriously. You're not even on a record company's radar with less than 20 million streams. Think about it. I know. 20 million streams. streams. I know. And, 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 you know, the thing about teenagers is that they they latch onto a song and they play it 10 times. Yeah. They play it 20 times. They play it 30 times a day. Mm-hmm. It becomes part of their life. Us old folks, we don't do that. We listen to a song, we listen to it two or three times, and then we, you know, listen to something else. Yeah. Teenagers, they like to listen to stuff over and over and over and over again. Well, the record companies know that. Yeah, so those streaming services that, are great for them. So, you know, obviously the focus right now is selling uh, uh, for, for major labels anyway, yeah. is, is that 13 to 14 year old. Now the hip hop rap community, they have their, their sort of insulated bubble. Mm-hmm. And if you break into that, it's sort of, um, 
known entity and they and they have a way to distribute amongst themselves and produce these uh, overnight sensations that are all driving around in Lamborghinis. But of course, in three years from now, I don't know where they'll be. I know. So who knows? Yeah, it's yeah. a very, very different time, very different market. That's right. Yeah. We have about 15 more minutes left in the program, and there's a few questions I want to make sure I nail on, especially some of the guitar sure. players will appreciate this. You uh, go. I'll try to keep it shorter, too. No, no, listen, no, hey, no, 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 <laughs> you're doing great, man. You're making it easy for me. But right. Joe has a, uh, and I, I apologize, too, we're talking a lot about Joe tonight, but we all love Joe as well, just like you do. And Joe has this long-running history, uh, a great rela- endorsement relationship with Ibanez. I mean, he's been with him forever. But, you know, before working with Ibanez, you can probably see just over my shoulder, um, you see a nice, beautiful red Kramer back there, Kramer Pacer. And, you know, the Ibanez, so to speak, was kind of an evolution of a lot of different things for Joe, but bringing in a couple of the, I think he had a couple of white Pacers and maybe kind of hodgepodge different parts on both, whatever. And I think one, I think either maybe both of them made their way to surfing. Do you remember those days of bringing the Kramers in and were they temperamental form or was it something very, how, how was that whole synergy between him and the Kramer? Um, he was always, uh, uh, fooling with it. Okay. So, yeah. um, in a very non-technical, very non guitar centric answer would be, he was always fooling with them. Right. Um, in other words, uh, he set up his own guitar. Um, he would uh, mute strings with different uh, methods mm-hmm. and, um, you know, adjust the bridge and the intonation depending on where he was on the neck. Gotcha. For instance, if we were punching in a, uh, a section where he was way up high up on the neck mm-hmm. and he wanted... Uh, the intonation to be perfect for that section we would we would set the guitar up or he would set the guitar up so the intonation was exactly what he wanted and then um uh, this is analog tape days so i would punch in and punch out for that one it could be just one line or something that he wanted it to be have perfect intonation I mean, it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was like that. It was, it was always a constant, like fighting the guitar. Right. And trying to make this guitar, um, do what he was asking it to do. Right. And that day too, it was, you know, very entry level. I mean, the Floyd Rose had just kind of made its way Mm -hmm. onto the guitars, you know, so we're, we're kind of breaking new grounds, a lot of learning. No, anytime he grabbed that, that whammy bar, I knew we were only good for like, you know, another 10 seconds or so <laughs> we would have to stop yeah because <laughs> if you if you would pull that thing back or push it down you know we would have to stop and he would have to retune and yeah stuff, so yeah i like the, that you shared the fact though that you've intonated for a register like a registry on the guitar so like if you yeah. intonated for like the 12th to the 22nd fret and you hit an open chord it's probably gonna sound horrible but it sounded oh, yeah. great from the 12th to the yeah. 22nd yeah. that's cool yeah. thank you for sharing that here's something yeah. i found is very very important there's one thing i i didn't want to miss touching bass on um, cause I saw you share this on Facebook a while back and I thought this was such a cool thing about you. Uh, I share all sorts of things on Facebook. I know. And I love it. And I thank you for being <laughs> so my be friend. be careful. I know. That's good. <laughs> I'm very vocal. <laughs> hey, that's good. And thank you for being my friend on Facebook. I'm very honored to, to say the least, yeah. but you all shared right. that nice big process of taking what I thought was two skids. It looked like two skids, maybe more of boxes oh. of tapes, converting yeah. those to digital. Tell us about that process, what that involved. That was amazing. 
Uh, yeah, you're talking about Joe's analog tape collection. Yeah. Right. Um, well, <clears throat> you know, the technically the record company um, owns the masters. Of course. In other words, when they give us a budget to record and we buy 20 rolls of two-inch tape and we uh, do an album, technically we're supposed to send all that stuff back to the record company. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we did and sometimes we didn't. Um, it wasn't because we were trying to withhold anything, but it was sometimes not convenient or we, for whatever reasons we didn't. Um, but, you know, collected over the years, it just collected and collected. And it got to a point like in a late 90s where I said to Joe, you know, at some point, we're going to have to transfer this analog to digital. Mm -hmm. Well, in the 90s, digital was still in its infancy. Right. I mean, it started in the 80s, but even by the 90s, we were still a bit skeptical about it. Like the Floyd Rose so, on a guitar at the, at the early onset. It was like, ooh, what, what, do we go there? Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, do we really want to do this now? Mm -hmm. So we waited. Um uh, and eventually, um, around uh, 2016 or so, I started the process of transferring all the analog multitracks to digital, okay. high-resolution digital, everything at 9624 with the best converters mm -hmm. available. <clears throat> I, sh I felt that that was um, the best the way preservation. To go. You know, yeah, and, and, and a safe bet. So um, it took a it took a while, and we did it. Um, we didn't we didn't get all the records because Sony still had some of them. I mean, and and it, and and then and when we we got into this awkward period of going from analog to digital. Mm -hmm where we didn't have tapes anymore, but we had boxes and boxes of hard drives. Oh, okay. Well, which hard drive do we save? Right. You know, we have to, first of all, we have to open it up. We have to get it into Pro Tools and open it up. Whoa, whoa, my new Pro Tools system doesn't open up the old Pro Tools files. Oh, boy. So that was one hurdle, <clears throat> excuse me, we had to get over, was getting, you know, the, the sessions to open up. So once I got past that process, then... I had to go in and really like take a look at everything and figure out how is this the fi what was used for the final mix or you know the labeling it it got crazy and it took a long time kind to figure it out. Kind of a scavenger hunter, a goose chase. Yeah, there was at least um, there was probably um, eight or nine rec uh, eight at least eight or nine records that were all analog, mm -hmm. hundred percent, and then from around. Um, 90 from from crystal planet on mm -hmm. it started going to digital right so the first record i did with joe on digital was strange beautiful music okay that was the first digital record i made with joe so from that point on everything else has been digital and there's hard drives all over the place at his house at mike frazier's studio i mean just everywhere so I had to get it all together, and uh, 
So we ended up doing it. And then Joe said, well, now what are we going to do with all the tapes? And I said, well, we should send them all to Sony because they actually own them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we gathered all the tapes and we put they were on these pallets. And uh, I took a picture of it. Yeah. There's just hundreds of them. And uh, we sent them all to uh, Pennsylvania. It's going to go into a cave or some shit. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but the fact is, I got I got every note that Joe had recorded that in, uh, of, of all those tapes onto one hard drive. Like five terabyte or one, something? Six terabyte six. drive. Wow. Everything everything on a six terabyte drive. It's not something. Now, I duplicated that drive four or five times. I did it with solid state drives. Mm-hmm. Um, platters, a combination of everything. Yeah, a combination yeah. of everything, and we spread them out uh, all over the place. So For safety. We're co- so we're covered. If we want to get back to anything, no, nope, no problem. That's fantastic. And actually, Gary yeah. Filner here in the chat has a, a good question, and it alludes to this totally with the uh, with the Universal fire. So many things were lost there. Yeah, this is you know perfect timing, right? I'm not sure if that had any catalyst to it, but still, now you've got redundancy. You've got them all over the place. And just to think about it, look look at the old days of us, you know, all of us were in the VHS and beta days with all of our movie collections. And f- uh, one day, you know, we could actually have one disc now that would fill rooms of VHS tapes or maybe just, yeah, just a hard drive. We, you know, we're into streaming movies at home and things like that. One little box takes care of rooms and yeah. in, in this case, skids or pallets of tape. Yeah. You no, know? it's incredible. It is, it is for sure. And, and to have, uh, you know, instant access to everything. I mean, if Joe says to me, hey, do you have a copy of blah, 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 blah? No hey. problem. I throw the drive in, pull it up. I can do a rough mix of that song or whatever, give him the final mix or whatever it was. FTP it over to him. Anything that he has recorded since 1986. Yeah. It's all there. Yep. Send him a Dropbox yeah. link or an FTP link and he's got it yeah. in 15 minutes. Yeah. yeah, it's all there. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, yeah. I, a couple other things I want to touch base on, and I, I want to extend an invitation to you to come back on again later on because we've got so many more things on the agenda. We'll reach out to you again. I told you this was going to be great. I, I want uh, This is a perfect time to maybe share the story. When I first reached out to you on Facebook, and, I, and I'm kind of talking to the viewers at this moment, I, you know, I asked John to come on the show, and he's like, uh, I don't know really what I can bring to the, to the table because you know it's more guitar-centric and stuff like that. And I think the timing of this was perfect because I've got, I w- kind of rebranded the channel going from, you know, just focusing on one thing. And now by making it Music Gear Network, I, I can talk to journalists. I can talk to recording engineers and producers like yourself. And I just I feel so good about making that change because I, I would have never had the chance to speak to someone with the, the what you've brought to this industry. But one of the one of the things I love about you is the YouTube channel, which we have in the link down below. And there's a reason why I want people to check this out: the One Mic series. So yeah. you know, if there's people out there that you know, a home hobbyist recording, uh, you know, enthusiast, and they'll stick 15 mics all over the place, think they're going to get some good sound. They probably can. Maybe they can. Maybe they can't. I'm not one of those people. I can't get good sounds on microphones. I never just. I never will. Maybe one day I'll I'll stop saying I can't and I'll try. But you capture some of these artists with one microphone in the room, the one mic series. And I think that's possibly how you worked and end up meeting in with Paul Gilbert. But tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about that series and what people can expect from that. Um, well, it, it started uh, a bit as kind of um, a goof, if you will. Sure. Um, I was working with a band in a studio making a conventional uh, recording, multi-track recording. And... I had just obtained this microphone by AEA 
called the AEA R88, which is a stereo ribbon microphone. Okay. And I was um, I was kind of captivated by the microphone um, f- for a number of reasons, but I don't have to get into. But um, I th- I thought to myself, if there's ever been a microphone that could record an entire band at once around one microphone, it would be this. And that's because um, the R88 is a bi-directional microphone. And when I'm, for the layman out there, a bi-directional microphone means that both sides of the, in this case, a ribbon or capsule, um, picks up an an equal, it picks up on both sides equally. Yeah, dual right? diaphragm on both now, sides. Yeah, yeah. Both sides of the microphone are active, and they both are uh, are equal. And the beauty of a ribbon microphone, because it is just one ribbon, the sound quality is identical on both sides. Where with a dual capsule uh, condenser microphone, there's actually two capsules in the microphone, pointed in in opposite directions. Um, and so usually one sounds different than the other. So in this case, I thought, wow, with a ribbon, this side sounds just like that side. Well, with a stereo ribbon, you have you have them stacked like this. I don't know if you can see that here. Let me see if I can put that yeah, in. Yeah, see that? Yeah. <laughs> like that, right? So you have them stereo. So you have a stereo field on one side and you have a stereo field on another side. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be cool if I could get a band to set up around this microphone and record them in uh, in a way that sounds like a multi-track recording. In other words, uh, not just like a bunch of banjos and acoustic guitars. I mean, people have done that before. You sure. But I was th- but I was thinking maybe I could actually put like electric guitars on stools and put them out to the left and right. You know, put mm-hmm. them out left and right, and then put the bass in the middle, put the drums in the middle, put a singer on one side singing in the middle, and, a, and somebody else singing from the other side in the middle. And I can move everything around and turn the guitar amplifiers up and down and keep fooling with it until it starts sounding like a multi-track recording. Now, I didn't know if that was, I was, I didn't know if I was going to be able to do that or not. So the band was nice enough to show up the next day and do this with me, a band called San Geronimo. Okay. And I just sort of like hap- haphazardly set them up in the room where I thought it would it would kind of work. I went into the control room, I pushed up the two faders because it's just a stereo yeah. mix. Yeah. And I was kind of like, wow, this is actually kind of sounds kind of cool. So I go back out and I make more adjustments, turn some guitar amplifiers up and down, and I move some of the performers in and out around the mics to create a stereo recording. And I add a little bit of reverb and I do some some of the stuff that you would normally do. And I said, wow, this this is really pretty cool. So we recorded it. I sent everybody home with the recording and I went about my business. And the band started like calling me up saying, man, this is like the best recording we've ever made. Right off the <laughs> this floor. This sounds better than our record. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, 
well, maybe I should go back and listen to it some more. <laughs> so um, I started thinking, you know what? I think I might want to try to refine this a little bit. Yeah. So to make a long story short, uh, over the course of the next two years, I did that recording 30 more times with 15 more acts. Wow. I found 15 more artists that were suitable for this. Mm -hmm. And I made um, 30 recordings, two songs each, essentially. And w as an afterthought, when I was doing the recording, the first recording with San Geronimo, mm -hmm. I had my um, iPhone with me. And I thought, Video. you know, I'm just going to walk around the room with my with my iPhone yep. camera video and just shoot the band while they're while they're recording this for documentation's of, sake. So I know where they are around the microphone. It'll help you. And just and just for fun. Mm -hmm. So I throw that up on YouTube and I immediately got like fifteen thousand views of it of the thing. And <laughs> wow. people started talking about it. The thing that particular uh, video sort of went viral. Mm-hmm and i thought wow people are really responding to this they really like the idea that a band is recording from top to bottom no overdubs Rah. right yeah no overdubs i've i've taken away all the the safety nets mm -hmm. they don't get to fix anything yeah one more time they one have time. to they have to just do it right the first time and because there's a video documentation of it it proves that nothing's been fixed, repaired, changed, overdubbed, yeah. Yeah. blah, 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 edited like that. It's just one continuous video. So I thought, <clears throat> well, if I continue down this course and do this, you know, and pursue this for the next few years, I have to shoot it in video. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm going to have to shoot the video, too. So I thought, well, I, what I wanted was a one-person perspective. I wanted that person, I want the viewer to be in the studio with the band, sort of walking around um, listening and um, experiencing, what would quite frankly, what I've been experiencing for 40 years in recording studios. Yeah. Which is musicians in a room making music together. I want to invite them in. I want a one perspective look. So one camera, no edits, one band, no edits, you know, some lighting that makes them look good. Yep, cinematic and, a little bit. And, you know, and make it cinematic. And, yeah. And, and, and each band should probably have a different look. You know, yeah. I had some, I had a fairly high bar to try to try to meet yeah. cinematically. <laughs> and so I found this, I found this, this kid, um, Nathaniel Cofield, who was a very, very smart musician who knows how to shoot and light people. Nice. And so he's on a steady cam. He moves around. Um, we invite people in, and that's what you get. You get this, you get the artist in their most purest, intimate, uh, you know, point of view possible. Yeah. And so I went out of my way to find people that write really good songs. It's all singer songwriter stuff. Mm -hmm. So they're all really good songwriters. They really connect with their music. They sell their songs, so to speak. And I've done it. Uh, I did it at a bunch of studios here in town. Um, 
and then it, I took it. Uh, I took it on the road, if you will. Okay. And I did some up in um, Portland uh, at a studio up there called Hallowed Halls. Really big, beautiful library studio. It was a really cool environment. Mm -hmm. But then also took it to Muscle Shoals and recorded three art, uh, uh, two uh, two artists there. And then I went over to Sun Studios in Memphis since it was only a couple of hundred miles away or whatever it was. And I did some stuff at Sun Studio. Wow. So I ended up with 30 acts, uh, I mean, 30 videos, mm -hmm. 15 acts, all done with one microphone. Um, I'm really proud of it. It's, a, I don't know where to go from here with that. You've raised your bar. <laughs> I don't, I don't think I, I'm not inclined to want to do anymore. No. Um, I think I proved my point that you can actually record a band around one microphone. Sure. Um, and it sounds like a multi-track recording if, yeah. it, if a lot of time and care is taken. But the beauty is, is you get this vulnerable, intimate, really vulnerable and intimate, um, performance from the artist. I agree. Because, there again, no safety net. You no. know, nowadays people come in, they no set up their multi mic, multi channel. People play. Ah, if I don't play so good, I can come back on Thursday and redo my part. You know, is everybody really committed to making this one take great? I don't know. <laughs> sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. Yeah. You know, there's so many safety nets. We don't have to be our best all together at once. I strip that all away. I get rid of the producer. I get rid of the engineer. I mean, I am the engineer, but it's just, for yeah. heaven's sakes, it's just one microphone. <laughs> There's not a lot of engineering going on, No, right? but still, I, yeah, I, I you get know, it. But, I'm, but, 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 but bands come into studios, they may not, they may, 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 might be the first time. Sure. And an engineer walks in the room and he starts effing with everything. He starts changing their sound and mixing their sound. He's got ideas and we're going to do this and we're going to add reverb and put bands. a delay on that and blah, blah, blah. And pretty soon the band's sitting there going, what the hell? This is not, this is not who we are. Biting <laughs> their know? nails. There's and... all this, there's all this manipulation going on by producers and engineers behind the scenes. Yeah. I, I'm guilty of it. Yeah. I'm one of those. Okay. So I'm not, I'm not pointing fingers, no, but I'm course. just saying that's the process we have grown to assume is the way we make records. Yeah. Right? I mean, this is how we make them. Everybody comes in and everything is separated and everything can be changed and everything can be pitched and everything can be edited. And if the drummer doesn't play straight, we'll make it straight because we can edit the crap out of it. Yeah. You know, and this is just an assumption people are making when they walk into a recording studio. And I'm saying all that, leave it all at the door, ain't happening come in, stand around this microphone. I'll show you where to sit. I'll show you where to be. I'll adjust the volumes, but that's it. The band's got to be the band. And play, give the world your music. That's Just right. hand it to them. And there are some, you know, now if you look at all 30 of these, yeah. some are very successful. Some are like, in my opinion, some of my best work. I mean, they're outstanding. The, um, uh, Jackie Green. Just watch the Jackie Green video and okay. tell me that isn't just like one of the most amazing little performances. Uh, uh, Lynx. Um, uh, the, the, the stuff I shot of her up in Portland. Just absolutely brilliant. 
I mean, just beautiful. I mean, I can't even imagine it being any better than it is. Yeah. And it and it's one take. They came in and that's what they did. They just came in and they set up and they played and that's what it was. That's and magic a, right there. It's really, really cool. And I'm I'm really proud of that. So I'm I'm probably as proud of that stuff as anything I've ever done. Well, it's good to good to hear. And I'm seeing some comments in the chat. People are already subscribing to your YouTube channel to check that out. So that's fantastic. Yeah. Just before we go, we're a couple minutes over, but I would feel I just feel horrible if I didn't mention Paul here on the show. Uh, Paul was on the show. Paul oh. Gilbert was on the show a while back. And uh, I mean, he just made it so fun. I mean, yeah. you know, I'm I hear like as you say, I'm kind of like the engineer or I'm the producer or whatever it is. I'm just pushing buttons to make the show go without having train wrecks. And Paul is just oozing t- not only talent but passion, you know, yeah. making you want to play guitar and just smiling and blah blah blah. I mean, he's he's got to be the happiest guitar player I've ever yeah. known in my life. What yeah. was it like working with Paul in the studio? You worked on his uh, last record. Yeah, Paul, Paul is amazing. Um, you know, I've avoided doing guitar instrumental records uh, pretty much. Um, uh, I haven't really done. I did one with George Lynch, but I haven't really. Actually, that didn't turn out. It started out as a guitar instrumental record, but okay. Anyway, um, Paul, I don't know, man. That guy is. I, I've never met anybody like him. I mean, I've never. I've never met anybody that can come in and pick up a guitar and play absolutely perfectly mm-hmm. for five minutes straight. I mean, I mean, just blow like that. Yeah. I mean, what you're seeing in in those videos and what you hear on that record, that's all live. Now, originally, he invited me to come up and do do it as a one mic. Okay. But after the first day, I said, Paul, I just I know what it is you want to do. And I don't think it's going to work as a one mic, but we can record it live. We can say no overdubs and we can say no editing. Mm-hmm. If you're if, if you're in agreement with that, then let's go forward. So he said, well, f- fine, let's do it that way. So I threw up, you know, a dozen microphones. Yeah. But it was it's all live. Wow. That, everything you hear is 100 percent live. I, I mean, he is. <laughs> You know, Joe is an incredible guitar player, mm-hmm. no question about it. And his compositional skills is beyond belief. But Paul, his ability to pick up guitar and play it flawlessly for six minutes straight <laughs> is, I've never heard anything like it. Yeah, it's I mean, it's I, so kept, crazy. I kept waiting, when's he going to blow a note? Yeah. <laughs> You know, when's he going to make a mistake? When's he going to do something that that I'm going to go? Mm, uh, yeah, uh, let's let's take take two. <laughs> so he goes in there with the band. I mean, really, what determined what take we used mm-hmm. on those songs w- with the guys in the studio? Is there someone else made was, a mistake? W- w- was how everybody else was playing? Yeah, exactly. You know, did the drummer did the drummer have his shit together? Oh. Did, did the bass player not blow that? Coming yeah. back in that second, you know, it's that kind of thing. I mean, wow. it was really the band was determining what take we take. Paul just went out there and played flawlessly take after take after take after take. I mean, I could have taken any one of his takes. I mean, he would argue, obviously. Yeah. Um, some weren't as good as others. But as as somebody who wasn't that familiar with him and, and his uh, technique and his style and his songwriting, I was floored. Yeah, I was like sitting there going, I, I don't know. Yeah, 
uh, that's a pretty good take. <laughs> I mean, you, can you play it better than that? If you think you can, go play it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to get in your way. Yeah. But uh, and then he'd go out and play something just as good. So he's yeah, insane. he he and he's just a, a delightful human gentleman. Being. Oh yes. my god. Yeah, yeah, he just is delightful. Makes you makes you love life. I'll I'll give you a happy little takeaway from this as well too, because I threw him off his game. This was really funny, and you know I wasn't prepared for this. It was just one of those things, you know, trying to flying by the seat of my pants. And I think this was just before we went live, and so he's downstairs. He's kind of setting up his new little studio. He's got a chalkboard behind him, and he's drawing some martial amps on the chalkboard. So by the time the show started, he had a couple stacks drawn on the chalkboard, and everything. He uses it for lessons for his students. And it's kind of uh, his uh, academy st- stuff that he does. So he's got the one Marshall lamp, whatever. And he's giving me a line check, giving me some signal, whatever. He goes, that sound good? And he goes, and he's drawn a little bit more. And I said, oh, no, turn up a little bit more mids on your uh, mids on your chalkboard back there. And he looks back at the chalkboard. He goes, turn up my what on the what? And so I threw him <laughs> off his game because he's got imaginary, you know, knobs, right? Yeah, it was, it was yeah, a funny yeah, moment yeah. at the time, but... You know, he start, him, him and Joe both strike me a lot about you too. I mean, I've only known you for a little bit through Facebook, but I've been a fan of yours forever. And I think as we close the show, I just want to say this, it'll put it in perspective. You know, back in the day when the physical sales were what they were, there weren't a lot of bands as, as digital, as physical media started to go away, there weren't too many bands I would physically buy uh, the physical copies. I'd still pay for my music, you know, for downloads and things like that. But Joe Satriani was one. Uh, Van Halen obviously was another, um, and the liner notes. I would read those liner notes, and the common thread. I mean, sure that you got Joe Satriani with a great guitar, a great guitar player, great amp, all that good stuff. But John Cunabruti, John Cunabruti, John Cunabruti, and and I think that's. I think the world needs to know that that that's a secret. That is one of many secret weapons on those records, and I think we're all blessed to have your talent. And it's just been. A really, really amazing to speak to you tonight. I've had a great time, and I hope you enjoyed it as well. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you, Eric. Awesome. And I, I hope I didn't go on too long. Oh my you goodness! Know, sometimes. <laughs> no, listen. I mean, I do try. I do try to keep my shows running to a certain time frame, just for the yeah. sole fact that I want to keep it. I want. Well, to keep... listen. It's it's been forty years. I mean, you got to hey, get a break here. But you, hey, oh, I'm <laughs> I gonna... could go on for another two hours. <laughs> listen, listen. Uh, that means we I... never got in. We never talked about eighty money. So you may want me back about that. Please, let's do that for sure. The Rockets. You know what? Yeah. Let's let's take let's take a moment just for a second because I here again too. We just lost Eddie. Uh, the world the world lost Eddie. And whether you are a diehard fan or or just a closet fan or just aware of his uh, discography, I mean everyone loved him. Um, let's take a moment for a second. The Rockets. Let's talk about that career for a sec before you got into all this. Let's, let's t- we'll take a minute on that for sure. Well, I mean, um, well, I met Eddie in uh, nineteen seventy two. Uh, he joined uh, a band that I was actually, uh, the band was put together uh, by a, the guitar player, Dan Alexander. And so that was when I first met Ed. We were in a band. We called it the Rockets. We worked out of Berkeley, California. Mm-hmm. We stayed together for about two and a half years. During that two and a half years, we became, um, you know, a pretty big draw in the in the Bay Area and the greater Bay Area, we were selling out the clubs and, you know, we had a, we had a thing going we were looking forward to signing a record contract because a lot of the bands, um, from the Bay Area at the time were getting record deals and we just thought it was just a matter of time for us. Right. So we were just in line for that. We, um, we ended up in a, a recording studio. We did a bunch of recordings, um, 
and a, a, a for CBS Records, essentially. And there, there was a, a guy that worked for CBS, uh, an assistant engineer, and he took us into a studio and we recorded a bunch of stuff. We got rejected and that kind of um, created problems with the band. Uh, you, you know, it's like when you work up to a certain point and then you do a demo for a major record label and you get turned down, it really kind of um, upsets the apple cart. People oh, of course. start wondering, you know, who's who's the weakest link in this band? Who's to blame, <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, what is it that they don't like? Or what is it, what do we need to do? And blah, blah, blah. So it was, it was a, it became a difficult period. And we had some very strong personalities in the band, mm-hmm. including Ed. And eventually the band broke up. Those recordings uh, sat dormant for, well, I don't know how many years, until uh, 2006. Wow. Where I went back and I remixed everything and actually made them available. So if you want to hear Eddie Money before he was Eddie Money and he was Eddie Mahoney in the Rockets, um, you can, I think it's on Spotify or title. It's called, uh, the Rockets and the album is called re-entry. Okay. I'm going to look that up. I'm going to look that up. Not to be confused with a band called the Rockets from Detroit. Yeah, I know. That was a big band went on to have a record, had, they had a record deal and they had records. Mm-hmm. So don't get us confused with those guys. No. This is Eddie Mahoney. Right. But you know, Ed was a character, always was mm-hmm. hard to get to know, always on, um, he would show up to rehearsals with a couple of six packs of beer <laughs> and a couple of friends. Sure. I mean, that, that was the kind of guy he was. We'd play a gig, a New Year's gig. He, he came out at midnight with a Roman candle. He thought it would be really cool to have this big Roman candle burning as he walked out on stage. Well, of course, it filled the club with smoke, <laughs> right? Yeah. And the fire department showed up and oh. the club owner hated us and we never got hired back. Um <laughs> Uh, we did a little mini tour up the coast. We are up in Reading. First day of the tour, Eddie goes to a pool hall, meets some people, ends up smoking some pot um, outside on this patio. Yeah. And gets busted. I was going to ask that if he got busted, yeah. 1973 in Reading, California. Probably going to go to jail. Yep. That's just how it was. Yeah. So he go. They put him in jail. Our tour is canceled. The band has to go to a pawnbroker. Uh, not a pawnbroker, but a bail bond. Get some money. Well, take him all up. our gear. Oh no. And give him all the gear out of our truck to get him the money to get him out of out of jail. Oh no. That's the kind of guy Ed was. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it was always something yeah there was always something going on a bit you know self-destructive <laughs> yeah of course you know yep. bit self-destructive um like i say he's hard to get to, I, I i was in a band with him from three years i never really got to know him oh um but later you did right well Later. No, I never got w- once he became Eddie Money, he mm-hmm. was off and okay. and he didn't wear stardom really well in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um you know, but uh, when he got sick, he started reaching out to friends. Yeah. 
And he reached out to me and we had some long talks and we finally connected. That's unfortunately well, it was six took months that. before he, before he died. Yeah, I saw that. I think it, I think it was important for him to reach out and um, reconnect with a lot of people. Yeah, so, when your time is limited, um, I think you're, you 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 realize it's time to make yeah, amends and yeah. yeah. But I, I could really yeah. feel that in some of the the posts you were sharing, and I was really feeling it as well too. And I'm not I'm not going to say I was a, a diehard fan of Eddie's. I was a fan, and I appreciated it. I never got to really. I mean, I only know his big hits. I'm not going to lie and say I know everything. I don't. Oh, sure. But yeah. I mean, you know, who doesn't love Eddie Money? If the song comes on the radio, you certainly don't change the station. Yeah. Right? No, he was. He had a great voice. Yeah, I mean, he did. When I the first rehearsal and he came in and started singing, I went, "Oh, this could be great!" Like he's the real deal. He's yeah. not like the guitar player who also sings. Yeah, I mean, this is like a front. This is a singer and a front man, and he, you know, I knew he was going to be a star. I didn't know how. Yep. I was hoping it would be with our band, but it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, although our version of Can't Keep a Good Man Down is, I think, a lot better. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I'm going to look that up on Spotify after the show for sure. I want to yeah. check it out. And it's nice that you had the, you know, your hands on, uh, you know, obviously taking care of that and preserving it and, and giving it to the to the world. So well, cool. interesting enough, it was the recording of those demos that got me thinking, I playing the drums isn't so much fun. Yeah. I want to do what these guys are doing. Being in a recording studio and creating something from nothing and Recipes. making it come out speakers. Yep. That's cool because drummers, you know, they play their part and it's just shut up and sit in the back of the room. Where if you're the producer or the engineer, I mean, it's like you're like all in it. Yeah. You're this, you can like, I mean, you're, it's all, you know, you're controlling all this shit. So that was like what turned me on to wanting to pursue that career. So once the whole band thing ran its course inside of me, you know, being a, once I got it out of my head, I wasn't going to be a rock star. Um, I pursued, uh, I pursued live sound and then I went in, ultimately went into recording. So, well, look at it this way. So, you know, it was, it, it was all good. That's awesome. I mean, working in a world yeah. class restaurant, being the you know a server, bringing the meals to the table with a great presentation is nice. But it's also nice to be that chef, creating that that nice, yeah. really yeah. nice dish. So, yes. listen, this yeah. has been absolutely fantastic. Don't go away. I'm going to say goodbye to you off the air. But I want to thank everyone for tuning in tonight and having a great evening with us. As I told uh, John off the air, my whole goal on this show every Friday is to be the warm up band, the warm up for your weekend. That's all I've done in my whole life has been a warm up for somebody. And I have no problem doing that as long as we made your weekend kick off on a good note, then I feel we did it very well. I could not think of a better guest to bring in here, someone who's got legendary footprints in the recording industry. Uh, Please say hello to Joe when you see him next. And uh, we are talking with his management right now as well, too. Uh, But he's, uh, you know, won't be doing anything until the new year easily. But uh, it's been fantastic. I'll say goodbye to you out there. Everyone have a fantastic and safe weekend. And we'll look forward to seeing you back here very, very soon. If you enjoyed the show, show a thumbs up. Subscribe if you're new here. And we'll keep working hard to, uh, to keep you as a subscriber. And until next time, thank you so much and cheers.